Thank you, Barry and Grant. Aren't we blessed to have such gifted people to lead us in worship? Thank you for sharing that with us this morning. Well, last week we began a series of messages that we are calling Divine Disruptions, stories of how God sometimes inserts Himself into our lives in a way that upends things. We like to think of God as somebody who just deals with us softly and gently, and sometimes He does. And other times God grabs us by the shirt collar and shakes us and pushes us in directions that we really hadn't planned on going. And we began that conversation last week by looking at the story of Abraham and how God seemingly from out of nowhere shows up one day and asks Abraham to do something that not only turns Abraham's world upside down, but in effect changes the destiny of the entire world. Well, we continue that conversation today by looking at a story involving Abraham's grandson, a man named Jacob. And the story that we're going to read, perhaps you've heard it before, it comes from Genesis chapter 32, and uh, it begins in verse 22. So if you've got your Bibles or your smartphone, uh, let me encourage you to turn there. Otherwise, just listen to this rather bizarre but powerful story of the interaction between Jacob and God. Beginning in verse 22, we read, That night Jacob got up and took his two wives his two female servants and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, "'Let me go, for it is daybreak.' But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because we saw, or I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Friends, this is the Word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be unto God. Well, because we have all been at home more in these last couple of months than is normal for us, we as a family have passed the time in the evenings by binge-watching a certain television show. Now, I'm not going to tell you the name of the show because I don't want you to judge me for it. But I will tell you that the storyline involves an unlikely partnership between the FBI and a man on their 10 most wanted list. And some of you will immediately know what show I'm talking about. And in every episode, this would-be fugitive uses his connections in the criminal underworld to help the feds catch more bad guys. 
But I've noticed as the storyline has unfolded that it gets a little harder with each episode to tell the difference between the good guys and the bad guys. Now, at the end of every episode, at least one more criminal has been eliminated, so all else being equal, we could say that's a good thing. The problem is, as the story gets deeper and thicker, the federal agents who are linked to this criminal informant begin to use some of his questionable and sometimes downright criminal tactics to accomplish their purposes. And so after a while, it becomes hard to know whether or not anybody is really doing the right thing anymore. Now, that could be an interesting insight into the dangers of moral relativism and, and what happens when we reject the belief in moral absolutes, but that's another conversation for another day. What I find interesting about that story is that even though it's fictional, I think it may actually be giving us a pretty accurate insight into the real world and the way real people live in the real world. Because the truth is, none of us are purely good or purely evil. Think of the fairy tales that we tell our kids. Fairy tales are intentionally set up so that there's a clear and obvious distinction between the heroes and the villains. Cinderella is the virtuous maiden. The evil stepmother, well, she's evil. And even a child can see that. Even a child can tell the difference. But there's a reason we call a story like that a fairy tale. It's because it's not true. That kind of absolute clear-cut distinction between good and evil in the lives of people isn't always the way the world works. The world is too complex and too ambiguous. None of us are purely one or the other. Take me, for example. I like to think I'm a pretty virtuous guy. I've made some really smart decisions in my life, but I've also done some really dumb things in my life, and I have been guilty at times of all kinds of of selfishness and pettiness and greed and a whole bunch of other stuff that I'm too embarrassed to tell you about. So, am I a good guy or am I a bad guy? Let's just say that apart from the grace of God, I'm glad I don't have to answer that question by my own wisdom. Part of the reason the Bible, I think, is so powerful is that it is so honest with us about the human condition the, the Bible is filled with stories of, of people that we would consider heroes, people who do great things for the kingdom of God, people through whom God moves and acts in powerful ways. And yet every single one of those characters is also deeply flawed and guilty of terrible things. Take the story of Jacob, for example. What are we to think of Jacob? Is Jacob a lying, thieving, conniving manipulator of people, or is Jacob one of the great heroes of the faith whose story points us to the faithfulness of God? The answer is yes. He is both of those things. When we first meet Jacob, it's on the day of his birth in Genesis chapter 25. He and his brother Esau are twins. The story is told that Esau came out first, which means according to the customs of the day, he technically was the oldest, the firstborn, which meant he was entitled to certain privileges and honors. But we're also told that 
that, that Jacob came out with his hand firmly grasped to Esau's heel, which is, we are coming to find later, a sign of things to come. Jacob's life, and particularly his relationship with his brother, is going to be filled with, with conflict and strife, much of it self-imposed by Jacob's own choices. Well, roll the story forward a little bit, and we find Jacob and Esau, both as young men, ready to enter into life as adults. But there's an important rite of passage that has to happen for that transition to take place. Esau, excuse me, Isaac, their father, has to bless them. Now, understand that in the ancient world, for a father to bless his sons was more than just to issue some generic wishes of good luck in life. For a father to bless a son was to, in effect, use his own words to create a reality. It was to bestow a level of honor and privilege upon someone that could never be revoked. And according to the customs of the day, Esau, as the oldest and firstborn, was entitled to receive the lion's share of the blessing. The problem was that Jacob and Jacob's mama weren't content to let that happen. You see, Jacob was a mama's boy, and so the two of them conspired together. They devised this elaborate and bizarre scheme by which they tricked Isaac into blessing Jacob instead of Esau. And because the power of the blessing was true, it was also irrevocable. Once the words were spoken, they couldn't be taken back. So even after the truth of their deception was uncovered, nothing could change the outcome. Well, as you can imagine, this didn't sit too well with Esau. He'd just been duped out of what was rightfully his, and so he vows to kill Jacob. And such is the nature of their relationship from that point forward. This means that Jacob has to run for his life. And he takes off and goes to a neighboring town where he, he hides out with an uncle named Laban. Well, as the story unfolds, we discover that, that Laban is a bit of a trickster and a huckster himself. And so this next season of life is defined by a, a battle of wits between Laban and Jacob as the two struggle against one another to see who can outwit and outmaneuver and be more clever and more deceptive than the other. Well, it takes many years, but in the end, Jacob comes out on top. Through another bizarre and elaborate scheme, Jacob manages to wrangle a massive amount of wealth away from his uncle Laban. And so now Jacob's got to run again. So Jacob is estranged from his father. He's on the run from his brother, and now he's also trying to escape his uncle. That's the Jacob we first meet. Jacob is a huckster a liar, a thief, and a con man. And yet the amazing thing is that as the story rolls forward, Jacob's life is all wrapped up in the story of salvation. So much so that later on in the Old Testament, whenever God is referred to, He's referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Somehow or another, God is willing to allow his story to be wrapped up with Jacob's story, or perhaps it's better to say he's willing to allow Jacob's story to be wrapped up with his story. And so it is that when we get to the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, 
In chapter 11, when we read what's called the roll call of faith, the writer of Hebrews will name Jacob as one of the great patriarchs, one of the heroes that we are to look to. Jacob has come to be recalled as one of the good guys. How does this happen? How does Jacob go from being what he was to what he became? Well, the answer lies partly in the story that we just read out of Genesis chapter 32. And in order to understand that, we need to go back and get some of the context. This story didn't just kind of happen in isolation. It was part of a sequence of events. So we have to back up to the first part of Genesis 32 to understand what's happening. Jacob, at the beginning of Genesis 32, is preparing to meet his brother Esau for the very first time since he ran away from home all those years before. Now, by this point, Jacob has become a wealthy man. He has acquired livestock. He's acquired two wives. He's had 11 sons. He'll have another one still to come. By all the standards of the day, he was extremely wealthy and prosperous. And the thing was, most of that had come to him by means of his own efforts. He had used his own ability to outmaneuver people and outthink people and outdeceive people to accomplish great things for himself. But there was one thing that Jacob had not yet been able to do, and it was the one thing that was most needed in order for him to move forward into the next chapter of his life, and that was to make peace with his brother. And that's where we find him in Genesis 32, longing to be reconciled to his brother. But as far as Jacob is concerned, Esau still wants to kill him. Esau still has it out for him. And so in this moment, Jacob is highly uncertain what's going to happen when he finally faces this one whom he wronged all those years ago. Well, always the planner, always the schemer, always the manipulator. Jacob makes a couple of more moves to try to tip the outcome in his favor. The first thing he does is take a defensive move. He takes his entourage, all of the people and the family and the wealth and the livestock that he's acquired, and he divides them into two camps. And he, he puts one over here and he puts one over here on the theory that if, if Esau attacks one of the camps, at least the other one could escape. But Jacob didn't get this far in life by always playing the defense. No, he decides to go on the offense as well. So he, he takes another step to try to push the outcome one step closer to what he wants. He puts together this massive greeting party. He sends out an advanced team to go and meet his brother Esau, and he loads them down with all sorts of gifts for his brother He's got truckloads of donkeys and cattle and a, and a big old box full of brand new iPads armed with the latest gaming software, whatever he can do to try to soften Esau up and, and make him a little more favorably disposed. Again, this is how Jacob operates. He's always got one more angle to play, one more move to make, and he's hoping that he can possibly yet one more time bend the outcome in his favor. But now he comes to the end of his resources. He's done everything he can do. He's played every card he has. And all he can do now is wait. And for perhaps the very first time in his life, Jacob finds himself in a place of vulnerability. 
And this one who's always got one more move to make is finally at a place where the outcome of something isn't up to him, it's up to somebody else. For the first time in his life, he realizes that the next season of his life is dependent upon somebody else's decision, a decision that he cannot control. Will Esau receive the gifts that Jacob has offered in good faith and come to make peace? Or will Esau still act out his desire for revenge? At this moment, there's no way for Jacob to know. And so all he can do is sit and wait and realize that his life is now in somebody else's hands. That's a scary place for somebody like Jacob who's always got another step to take. Come to think of it, it's a scary place for any of us. We are those who like to think that we can control the outcome of things. It's a part of our modern inheritance as as citizens in the most technologically and scientifically advanced culture in history to think that if we just try a little bit harder, we can make things turn out the way we want them to. But sooner or later, we all come up against those circumstances where we realize the outcome of something is in somebody else's hands. You've done all the work. You took all the tests. You filled out all the applications. And now whether or not you or your your son or your granddaughter gets into that professional school is entirely in the hands of an admissions counselor who has to make a decision that you cannot control. You've worked hard. You've been the model employee. You've gone above and beyond. You've done everything that has been asked of you, and now it is entirely up to the whims of the management team whether or not you get the promotion. You've taken all the therapies. You've swallowed all the pills. You've gone through all the chemotherapy and the radiation, and now it's up to that next PET scan to determine whether or not your cancer is in remission and there's nothing else you can do about it. You've said, I'm sorry, a hundred times in every way you know how, and now it is entirely up to somebody else to decide whether or not your relationship is going to be restored. Sooner or later, we come up against moments when we realize the outcome is out of our hands. That's where we find Jacob at the beginning of Genesis chapter 32. And so perhaps it's not surprising that that's also where we read one of the most heartfelt prayers in all of Scripture. Genesis 32, verse 9, let me read to you the prayer that Jacob utters. He says, O God, my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and to your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and I will make your name great and your descendants like the sand of the seas which cannot be counted. Did you hear that prayer? Jacob said something I imagine he's never said before in his life. I am afraid, God. 
I am afraid because I can't make this turn out the way I want to. And so he utters the most powerful prayer any of us can ever pray. Two words, save me. Jacob cries out to God in a moment of utter helplessness and defenselessness to the one and the only one who can do anything about this moment. Save me, O God, because for the very first time, Jacob realizes he cannot save himself. All of his scheming, all of his manipulating, all of his twisting and turning and his angling and his moving, None of it's going to work anymore. And now his life is in the hands of God. And I doubt when Jacob uttered that prayer that he could have possibly anticipated the dramatic way God was going to answer it. That's what we just read about in the story we shared a moment ago. We read that Jacob sent all of his people and all of his things on across the Jabbok River while he prepared to spend the night alone. One can only imagine he's there to try to get his head straight on this, on this dramatic encounter, this meeting that's going to happen the next day. It's a moment of vulnerability and transparency for him. And just when he is about to settle in for a night of quiet contemplation, that's when we read that suddenly someone or, or something jumps out of the darkness and wrestles Jacob to the ground. And for the next several hours, the two, Jacob and whoever or, or whatever this is, flop around in the dirt, their arms and legs all tangled together as each one's trying to gain the advantage over the other. And it goes on like this all night, sometimes one having the advantage, sometimes the other. And just as the sun starts to come up and it looks as though Jacob once again is about to gain the upper hand, this bizarre wrestling partner, whoever or whatever he is, reaches out and touches Jacob in the hip socket and wounds him. But Jacob, never one to give up too quickly, refuses to let go until he demands that this mysterious intruder give him a blessing. And so, this wrestling partner of his tells Jacob that his name has now been changed from Jacob to Israel. And it's in that moment that Jacob suddenly realizes that this is no mere mortal he's been contending with all night. This is none other than God himself. Well, how does Jacob know this? The answer is in the new name he's been given, Israel. It's a compound Hebrew word which when translated loosely into the English means one who wrestles with God. Jacob comes to understand that he has been wrestling with God himself. Now what in the world is going on in this story? <laughs> You can only imagine the gallons of ink that have been spilled down throughout the centuries as scholars and commentators have tried to make sense out of this. Let me simply tell you that this is one of those stories that will resist any efforts we make to reduce it down to some simple moralistic tale. There is mystery going on here, and perhaps we shouldn't be surprised. 
It would be the height of arrogance on our part to assume that when God shows up, He should only do it in ways that makes clear and immediate sense to us. Whatever's happening here in this story is deep and profound and mysterious. But that doesn't mean we're left without a clue and that it has no relevance for us. Remember when and how this story happens. It happens when Jacob has been stripped of his ability to determine the outcome. The one who is normally able to orchestrate events so that they turn out in his favor has finally laid himself bare and vulnerable and open before God. And it is in that moment of vulnerability and transparency that God pounces. And I can't think of a better word to describe it. God pounces onto Jacob. We like to think that that God comes to us in tender ways. The old hymn we sing talks about softly and tenderly Jesus is calling, and certainly He does that at times. But there are other moments when God pounces. And in this instance, He jumps on Jacob's back and He wrestles him to the ground and in an almost violent way refuses to let go of Jacob until He has wrestled him free from all of His illusions. The illusions of control. The illusions of cleverness. The illusions of goodness and merit and the belief that it's up to Jacob to make everything turn out right. Remember, prior to this moment, Jacob lived with the idea that it was up to him to make things turn out the way he wanted. But here, flopping around in the dark, Jacob is forced to realize that the real outcome of his life is up to the faithfulness of God and not Him. Wrestling in the dark with the sweat and the dirt dripping down his face, Jacob now comes to understand that his life has been swept up in God's great plan of salvation, not because of what Jacob has caused to be, but because of what God has caused to be. Now, this story is titled... Jacob wrestling with God. We could just as easily title it with one word, and that word is grace. You know, we often think of grace as a sweet and gentle and somewhat harmless emotion. Grace, we like to think, is is a is an easygoing spirit. Grace means not getting too worked up about things. Grace means just kind of letting life roll on without trying to manage things. And, and, and to say that God is a God of grace, according to popular thinking, means that God just sort of shrugs your shoulders and, and takes a hands-off approach and just kind of lets things happen naturally and, and doesn't get too worked up and is a little blasé about human sin and human weakness. But that is not the image of grace that the Bible gives us. According to Scripture, grace is that powerful, world-changing, life-up-ending, sometimes disruptive, and we might even say occasionally unwelcome power in our lives by which God grabs hold of us and wrestles us free from all of our illusions. Grace is about a God who is not content to let us go until we have come to understand that our lives are not about us, but are instead entirely about Him. And I might add that this story in Genesis 32 is not the only place where we see that lived out. 
this story, this wrestling match that Jacob has with God, it actually, I think, is setting the stage for Jesus' entire ministry because the entire point of the gospel is that we are put into right relationship with God not because of what we do. It is not our cleverness. It is not our ingenuity. It is not our power to manipulate events that finally bends God into our favor. It doesn't work that way. We are put back into right relationship with God for one reason and one reason only, and that is the atoning sacrifice that Jesus makes. God in the flesh who comes and makes atonement for our sin and wrestles Satan all the way to a grave until we are stripped free from his control, not because of what we have accomplished, but because of what God has done. And while we sing of that as the great thing that it is, we must also understand the disruptive thing that it is because it strips us of our desire to think that sometimes and somehow life is about us and what we cause to be. I don't want to put too fine a point on things, but I can't help but wonder if some of us might not be at a similar place right now to where Jacob was when we find him on that night on the banks of the Jabbok River as he's wrestling with God in a moment of vulnerability, a moment of realizing that we don't control things quite the way we thought we did. The events of these last two months have have left us all feeling a bit vulnerable, and we who are normally pretty good at twisting and manipulating events have come to understand that at least for this moment, we are simply caught up and along for the ride, swept up in something that's bigger than us and something that we cannot control no matter how hard we try. Just to give you a, a personal example My wife and I have a daughter who tomorrow is graduating from high school, only there's not going to be a graduation ceremony, at least not the one that she and we have spent the last 17 years dreaming of and anticipating. The circumstances of this season have taken that away from us. And you want to know what my wife and I are going to do about that? Absolutely nothing, because there's nothing we can do. There are things that happen in life that are bigger than us, forces that are controlling the outcome of events sometimes that are beyond our ability to control no matter how hard we want to. And our loss of an important rite of passage pales in comparison to some of the losses that other people are experiencing and not simply because of the coronavirus. Right now, I have a friend who is battling a potentially terminal cancer that came upon him from out of nowhere, sort of like the God who jumped on Jacob's back from out of the dark. And now, with no prior risk factors and no previous health problems, he's battling something that is bigger than him. Sooner or later, we all find ourselves in that moment, in that place where we realize, I've done all I can do. I've played every card I have to play, and now the outcome is up to somebody or something bigger than me. And that's why I believe we should be very grateful for this story in Genesis 32. When we first read it, it's a bit alarming alarming and and jarring and maybe even a little bit offensive to think that, that God would act this way. I mean, how impolite. 
What kind of God would wrestle somebody to the ground? I would only say He is a God who refuses to leave us to our own resources. That's why on closer reading we should be very grateful for a God who is determined to have us for Himself, a God who will not let us go until we allow Him to bless us. That's why this story marked a turning point in Jacob's life. Prior to this moment, Jacob knew all about God. He picked up on hints of it in the prayer that we read a moment ago. He referred to God as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. But after this moment, Jacob not only knows about God, he knows God. And in this moment, the God who had only been the God of his father and his grandfather now becomes his God as well because Jacob comes to understand in a way that he never had before that his life has been swept up in something that he didn't cause to be and that he has been blessed by a promise that he never deserved to receive. And so for this point forward, Jacob, who will always be a bit of a resourceful man, will come to understand the reality of God's power in a way he never had before. And he is willing to surrender the outcome of his life to a God whose dreams for him are bigger and greater than his could ever be. And just so we're clear, let's not leave here today until we understand this. The same God who reached out and touched Jacob and wounded him, well, that same God will later himself be wounded for our sake, going to a cross to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so, friends, even though we find ourselves in a disruptive season of life, uncertain about what comes next, we can take confidence in knowing that our lives are in the hands of a gracious God who loves us and redeems us, not because of what we have done, not because of what we have proven, but because of who He is and what He is determined to do for us. And so what I would suggest to you today is that we can do no better and should ever hope for anything more than a God who will come and wrestle with us until He has stripped us bare of everything but Him. Would you pray with me? Gracious and eternal God, thank You that You were determined to have us. Thank You that in spite of of who we are, you have come to be who you are. We are in awe of the fact that, that we, in all of our imperfections, would, would be a part of what you were doing to save the world. And so even in these moments of great uncertainty, God, we just lay ourselves bare before you and ask that you would have your way with us. Give us confidence to trust in your goodness. Oh God, if there be any within the sound of my voice, who have never allowed you to wrestle them into the point of receiving your grace, I pray that that would happen right now. And that for all of us, our encounter with you this day would be one that leaves us different than we came. 
We thank you for your grace and your mercy, and we lean upon it in these hours. And we pray all of this in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Friends, we want to hear with you. If you're, if you're watching online, if there's something that you feel God calling you to do or say today, reach out and let us hear from you. Hit that connect button. Anybody that's got prayer needs or, or things you'd like to pass along, please pre- uh, pass them along to us so that we can stay in contact with each other. Now let me encourage you to take out your phones, open up the lyrics, and let's close out our service as we sing together. <laughs>